The following Bible lesson and other Bible information can be found on the official Dean Bible Ministries website. That's found at www.deanbible.org. That's www.deanbible.org. Dr. Dean is the pastor of West Houston Bible Church. And now, here's Dr. Dean with the Bible lesson. Trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge Him, and He will direct your paths. They that wait upon the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings as eagles. They shall run and not grow weary. They shall walk and not faint. Fear thou not, for I am with thee. Be not dismayed, for I am thy God. I will strengthen thee, yea, will help thee, yea, will uphold thee with the right hand of my righteousness. Be anxious for nothing, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving. Let your request be made known unto God, and the peace of God, which surpasses all comprehension, shall defend your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. Thou wilt keep him in perfect peace, whose mind is stayed on thee, because he trusteth in thee. For the word of God is alive and powerful, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even to the dividing asunder the soul and the spirit, and the joints from the marrow, and is a discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart. Before we begin our study of God's word this morning, we need to make sure we're in fellowship. Take a few moments for silent prayer, use of 1 John 1, 9 if necessary, and then I'll open in prayer. Let's pray. Father, as we examine the culture in which we live, we see more and more parallels between that which the Israelites faced in their own time. As we face a culture that has drunk deeply from the fountain of paganism, a society that has lost its anchor of an absolute in your word and an absolute in their thinking, we are often aware of how we are too become influenced by that same kind of thinking. Father, as we continue our study in Judges, help us to understand how we can see these same, same principles at work in our own lives, how we can learn the spiritual dynamics that are exemplified in the lives of these men that we are studying, that we might apply them and use them in our own life. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Now, one of the great principles from the old, in using the Old Testament is that Often the principles that we see in the New Testament that are explained in, in the epistles as more of, a, uh, more of mechanics, more of exhortations and commandments and mandates for the spiritual life, we see displayed, worked out in flesh and blood. We, we look at people who are not dissimilar from us, and we recognize that, as James says of Elijah, they are men like us. They are have the same problems, they have the same sin nature, they have the same struggles that we do. And as we look at them, we gain a greater perspective, I think, of how God works in our own lives and of the depths of His grace. I want to begin this morning, before we get into our passage in Judges 7, by looking at two passages in the New Testament. The first is in Hebrews chapter 11. Hebrews chapter 11. Hebrews 11 begins in verse 1 by saying, Now faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. Now the word here translated faith, 
we often take, when we see this in the English, we often take it as meaning trust, the active sense of believing. But there are two nuances to the concept of faith. There is the idea of faith in the sense of believing, and there is the uh, objective sense of that which is believed, or what we call doctrine. Sometimes it's a pregnant use. By that, I mean a full use or a plenary use of the word where you can't emphasize one over the other. Both are present. You have the active outworking of trust, but it is not an empty trust. It's not a faith in faith. It's not a faith in experience. It's not a faith in mysticism. It is a faith in, in uh, doctrine that has been revealed. And that is true here. It is a faith, you could translate it to get the nuance. Now, doctrine is the assurance of things hoped for. But see, it's not just the abstract doctrine. It is the trust in doctrine is the assurance of things hoped for. In our society, we're often taught that faith is something, uh, something that is uh, subjective. Faith is something that is personal. Faith is just what you believe and it's an opinion. It's something less than knowledge. And unfortunately, there has been, this has been contributed to by, the, by evangelicals in the Christian church. We come out of a... Someday I'm going to write a pamphlet on what is a Bible church. Because most people don't know what a Bible church is. And many of us who come to some place like Preston City Bible Church don't know what our history is. We don't know the background. We don't know the trends, the influences. We don't know the um, theologies that have gone before. You know, none of us are starting from scratch when it comes to studying the Bible. We're standing on the shoulders of great men who have gone before. And although at times there are those we listen to today who seem to have tremendous power in the Word and tremendous insight, um, maybe they're only standing two inches above the shoulders of the person who taught them. And it is the person who taught them that had the tremendous insights and the person who taught them that, that has given them the ability to go just an inch or two further in, the, in developing our own understanding of the Scriptures. And so we stand in the stream of a tradition. Sometimes we call it fundamentalism, and I don't like that word so much anymore because it's used of extremists. That's not its historical usage in the Christian church. It referred to the five fundamentals of the faith that were set forth in the early part of the 20th century in contrast to liberalism, which was teaching that the Word of God was a human invention and there were no miracles and there was no virgin birth and Jesus wouldn't come back and he was just a man. And the five fundamentals of the faith affirmed that the Bible was the infallible Word of God, that Jesus Christ was undiminished deity and true humanity united together in one person, that he was born of the Virgin Mary, that miracles were performed in the life of Christ. There was actual healing that took place. Blind men could see the lame walk. Lepers were healed. And that Jesus Christ would indeed return bodily to the earth at what is called the second coming. Those were the fundamentals of the faith. And uh, unfortunately, extremists have carried certain th- and legalists have carried certain things beyond that. But we stand in that stream, also called evangelicalism, but the term evangelical is a much broader term. In fact, there are many called evangelicals who all they, that, that really all they have in common is two things. They believe the Bible is the Word of God, whatever that means and that they believe that um, they need to uh, communicate their faith to those that are lost. That's about it. 
There are much, many disagreements. I'm a member of the Evangelical Theological Society, which is a collection of scholars and academicians and pastors that are concerned about more scholarly things. And the only thing we have to agree to to be a member of the ETS is that we believe the Bible is the Word of God. And there are some polarities within that group. There are from, from Charismatics and Pentecostals to Dispensationalists to Hyper-Calvinists to Hyper-Arminians. So it's quite interesting when that group gets together every year. But that's the, what the term evangelical, evangelical means. In the 19th, or really, as you go back earlier in time, back into the 18th century and 17th century, we, we, we have our roots in a movement called pietism. We have our roots in Calvinism. We have all the early dispensationalists, by the way, were, were Presbyterians, Congregationalists, and fairly strong uh, Calvinists to, to one degree or another. People like Darby, people like uh, Schofield, people like uh, James Hall Brooks, who was Presbyterian pastor, 10th Presbyterian Church in uh, St. Louis, who was Schofield's pastor, taught him dispensationalism. Louis Berry Chafer was an ordained Southern Presbyterian. Uh, all of these men have in, come from different traditions that have influenced us. But there are two traditions that have influenced us neg- negatively. One is the pietistic uh, emphasis that came out of the Moravians and others in the 17th century. They were missionaries. And the reason they, be, they, they developed was in contrast to the fact that in the Anglican Church and in Lutheran Church and Calvinism at that time, the people had grown to very creedal. In other words, all that mattered was that you affirmed some creed and there was no real application of doctrine and no real emphasis on the fact that there needed to be a personal faith and trust in Christ as a Savior so that um, the churches had become very cold and, and very dead. And so the pietistic movement was a reaction to that, and they tended to go too far in the other extreme, emphasizing personal experience with Jesus. So it began to bring in a very subtle form of mysticism. Well, this subtle form of mysticism developed again in the middle 1800s to late 1800s in what it came to be known as the Holiness Movement, which gave, which in, and the Keswick Movement. Keswick conferences were spiritual life conferences that began in England and were imported to the United States. Major speakers in both those groups were people like Dwight Moody and uh, Schofield, at, in some cases, Chafer as well, although Chafer rejected Keswick theology. Those were the influences, and there's this subjectivism that came with that, a mysticism, that somehow uh, everything is reduced to, to uh, our, our personal experience and how it impacts us emotionally, how it makes us feel. We see it exemplified in, in a hymn which, in a lot of ways, is, is good, but we don't sing it here and we never will while I'm here. He lives. He lives. I, I used to love to sing that, that song. I mean, it's got a great truth to it, and that is that Jesus Christ has risen from the dead. But in the chorus, it says, He lives, He lives. You ask me how I know He lives. He lives within my heart. See, it bases the ultimate knowledge of the resurrection on the fact that I've had an experience. And see, that's what runs through holiness theology and charismatic theology is that we need to just... And, ecumen- and the ecumenical side of both of those that have developed in the 20th century is that all that matters is that we have this experience with Jesus in common. 
And then we can all relish in that, and it doesn't really matter what the doctrinal distinctions might be, because we've all had this experience, and then that experience begins to be muddied. You know, one of the great little songs, and I don't know if we sing this downstairs or not, but we ought to, is Jesus Loves Me. You know, we think of that as a children's song, but there's great doctrine there. Jesus loves me, this I know. Why? Because the Bible tells me so. You see, that's why we know that Jesus rose from the dead, is because the Bible tells us so. We don't know anything about Jesus. We don't know anything about his life. We don't know anything about what he taught. We don't know anything about his miracles. We don't know anything about his credentials. We don't know anything about the undiminished deity, true humanity of Jesus Christ, apart from what the Bible tells us. If we didn't have the Bible, we wouldn't know anything about Jesus. We wouldn't understand Christology. We wouldn't understand pneumatology. We wouldn't understand theology proper. We wouldn't understand salvation. We wouldn't understand our depravity. We wouldn't understand anything. It's not experience. It's not because I've, I feel... If we're going to say that we know the resurrection is true because He lives within my heart, then frankly, we ought to all go be Mormons. If any of you have ever dealt with a Mormon missionary... One of the things that they will tell you is that the reason they know Mormonism is true is because they've had what they call the, the burning in the bosom. I know it's true in here. It, 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 there's not an objective, verifiable reality to it. There, there's no way you can look for empirical confirmation of its veracity. In fact, what you do find in history is that the whole concept that Jesus appeared over in the Western Hemisphere and led a bunch of Indians who were the lost tribes of Israel to salvation and that's a and gave them another revelation is totally absurd and not supported by any archaeology, not supported by any history or any evidence whatsoever. So it's a faith in faith. It's not a faith that is rational and confirmable and verifiable on the basis of uh, historical evidence. Notice I didn't say proved. Verified, confirmed on the basis and that's what Christianity is. It's not proved by empirical data, it is confirmed, it is supported, it is validated on the basis of empirical da- data, but it is not proved. It rests on the veracity of God and not on empirical data. And that is a kind of knowledge. See, we're not told in our society that faith is knowledge. Faith is something subjective. It's faith in faith, it's personal opinion. But faith in the Scriptures is knowledge, it's certainty, it's conviction. I know beyond a shadow of a doubt that heaven exists and that my access to heaven is dependent upon the finished and completed spiritual substitutionary atonement of Jesus Christ on the cross. And that is, I did not derive that from rationalism. I did not derive that from empiricism. I know that because the Bible tells me so. And that's true. And I know it. And my knowledge of that is just as certain, my knowledge that it is cold outside. And I experienced that empirically this morning. And my knowledge that it is, there is a clear sky outside, and I verified that empirically with my eyesight this morning. But the knowledge that Jesus Christ died on the cross for my sins is just as certain. And our faith in the Scriptures and the principles of doctrine is just as certain a knowledge as any other type of knowledge. Because we, if words have meaning, and the collection of words together in a sentence is convey propositions that can be validated or invalidated, then when we go to the Scriptures and properly understand it, we know that the truth that we derive from it is absolute truth with a capital T, and we can't 
get away from it, and that knowledge is just as certain and just as powerful. In fact, it is more powerful because it's the source of our true freedom from uh, the bondage of sin. And so that knowledge is, in fact, more certain than what I see, what I feel, what I experience. When the Word of God becomes more real to us, what God says about life becomes more real to us than our experiences, than our emotions, than our circumstances. That's when we are trusting God. And too often, we are so distracted by our emotions and by our experiences, and when those become a basis for Christianity, which they have in so many different churches, then when the storms of life come, we fall apart. We don't understand the basic mechanics of the faith rest drill. Faith rest drill begins with understanding that the Scripture is the Word of God and we believe it with every ounce of our being and we trust it solely. It is exemplified in in Peter's walking on the water when he has his focus on Christ, he walks on the water, but when he focuses on his empirical data and realizes he's on the water and he's walking, all of a sudden he begins to sink. But when his focus is, when, when the God is more real to him and the reality of Jesus Christ and his power is more real to Peter than the fact that he's on top of the water on the Sea of Galilee, then he is walking on the water. So that is one evidence of what faith is. Now, Hebrews 11.1 1 says that faith, or the faith in doctrine, is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen, for by it the men of old referring to Old Testament heroes, gained approval. And then it goes on through an entire catalog of references to these Old Testament heroes who demonstrated this. And each of these clauses begins with the phrase, by faith, by means of trusting doctrine, we understand certain things. By means of trusting doctrine, Abel offered to God a better sacrifice than Cain. We can skip down and we can read through the various heroes, but when we come down all the way down to verse 32, we see a summary statement related to the men of Judges. What more shall I say, having detailed Abraham, Moses, and many others? The writer of Hebrews gives us a summary. What more shall I say, for time will fail me if I tell of Gideon, Barak, Samson, Jephthah, of David and Samuel and the prophets, who by faith, by means of trusting doctrine, conquered kingdoms, performed acts of righteousness, obtained promises, shut the mouths of lions, quenched the power of fire, escaped the edge of the sword, from weaknesses were made strong, became mighty in war, and put foreign armies to flight. Now, those last three clauses specifically apply to Gideon in the episode with the Midianites. This battle that we are about to study in chapter 7 is one of the most significant battles in the ancient world. There are two battles that are recorded during this period. This is the first, the battle against the Midianites, who are never again mentioned. In fact, it becomes proverbial, and Isaiah refers to it in terms of a promise to the Jews when uh, Sennacherib's army has invaded, the Assyrians have invaded the southern kingdom, and they're They've destroyed Lachish, and they're on the way to Jerusalem. And uh, God prophesies, gives a message of comfort to Hezekiah through uh, Isaiah that just as the Midianites were totally destroyed by Gideon, so I will destroy the armies of the Assyrian. 
And so it, it became a proverb of a tremendous military victory. The second, which is beyond our scope, is when Saul destroys the Amalekites in, in uh, 1 Samuel. That ended their reign. And see, what we have here in, in, first, I mean, in uh, Judges 6 is a Midianite-Amalekite coalition. And the Midianites and Amalekites together were apparently a, a scourge, a strong f- military force in the ancient world that continually threatened the peace of the region. Uh, sounds rather modern when you think about the uh, Palestinians. And in fact, that's really a myth. There are no Palestinians, by the way. The term was coined by a Roman Caesar back in the second century after the fall of Jerusalem because he didn't want to give any identity or validity to any claims for Israel, for the Jews to go back to the land. So he renamed it and... Uh, the term Palestine goes back to Philistine. It never was the land of the Philistines. It's the land of the Jews. And it is, uh, and in fact, the term Palestinian was used to refer to Jews up until the middle part of this century. So uh, if you lived 50 years ago and somebody talked about a Palestinian, talked about a Palestinian regiment in the British Army, it was a regiment made up of 100% Jews. So the whole concept that there's a Palestinian people or a Palestinian land or a traditional Palestinian land is a myth that most modern nations and most people have bought into, but it is uh, totally fraudulent. But that's all beside the point. What we see going on today with the Palestinians and the Arab coalitions against Israel is no different from what was taking place in the Old Testament. Now, we looked at our first New Testament passage was Hebrews 11. And the second that I want to look at is in 2 Corinthians chapter 12. 2 Corinthians chapter 12. In the context of Paul's prayer to be delivered from this thorn in the flesh demon from Satan. Verse 7 identifies the problem. He says, because of the surpassing greatness of the revelations, because of all the knowledge that was given to Paul, there was an easy temptation, we can understand that, to arrogance. For this reason, to keep me from exalting myself, there was given me a thorn in the flesh. Now, we don't know what that was. I think it's defined in context in verse 10. His weaknesses, his distresses, persecutions, and difficulties that he faced in his ministry was given to me a thorn in the flesh, and this is defined further as a messenger. In the Greek word, there's angelos, which is the same word for angel. An angel from Satan is typically called a demon. So this was probably demon-influenced opposition to to, uh, Paul's ministry. In his own ministry, he had an intensified and doubly intensified uh, angelic conflict. Verse 8 says, Concerning this, I entreated the Lord three times that it might depart from me, which is legitimate because it's not illegitimate to ask God for something to which He will say no. Because we don't know that He will say no until we ask Him for it. And it is, there are times when uh, people have prayed in the Old Testament for God to remove certain opposition, and God granted it. So there is not only precedent for Paul making this prayer, it's legitimate. But once he got the message, no, he needed to relax and rest upon that. But the principle is given in verse 9. God said to me, my grace is sufficient for you. See, Paul needed to come to a better understanding 
of grace and grace orientation, which means that God supplies everything we need to handle any and every situation. He doesn't take it, necessarily take it away from us. See, God did not remove the thorn in the flesh. He didn't diminish it. Uh, in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, we're told that there is no temptation that should be translated testing that has taken you, but such as is common to man. But God is faithful, who will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you are able, but will make a way for you to escape that you may be able to bear it. See, it's not an escape clause, meaning that I'm going to get out from under the situation. It is an escape clause that allows us to live in the midst of the pressure cooker, but relaxed. The picture of that from the Old Testament is the the three Jewish boys who... uh, sat there in the fiery furnace, totally relaxed with a temperature of about 1,500 degrees Fahrenheit. And the Lord Jesus Christ, who's the fourth person who appears with them in in the fiery furnace, is with them. And they're just relaxed and having a great conversation and talking about the Word and God's plan for their life. And there's absolutely no concern whatsoever for the pressure that's going on around them. And that is what uh, this pictures. My grace is sufficient for you. We need to learn to relax and rest in God's power, that God's ways are not our ways. God's thoughts are not our thoughts. God's plans aren't our plans. God's agenda is not our agenda. And what we learn here is that when the Scripture says, my grace is sufficient for you, pow- my, for power, that is God's omnipotence, is brought to completion, perfected, is teleao again, a word we run into uh, over and over again, means to bring something to completion, to fulfill it, to, to bring maturity. For my power is brought to maturity in the believer in weakness. God is in the business of dealing with us in terms of our human weakness, and He wants to emphasize our inability in order to demonstrate that everything is on the basis of His ability. You see, that's part of the angelic conflict. In the angelic conflict, Satan rebelled as a creature claiming he had the ability to run everything. He had the ability to govern the cosmos. He had the ability to be God. And what uh, God is demonstrating in the angelic conflict is creaturely inability. That we can't do anything apart from radical dependence upon God. And this is the exact thing that God is teaching Gideon. So let's turn and see how God is using this in Gideon's life. We saw last time in Judges chapter 6 that Gideon still had to have his, his um, faith rest drill mechanics expanded. He had um, had the angel of the Lord appear to him and give him a promise. The faith rest drill begins with mixing faith with promises. Once again, I want to encourage you that you need to be reading your Bibles on a regular basis. Underlining promises, making uh, note cards, getting out a 3 by 5 card, writing it down, pen- taping it on the dashboard of your car or inside your glasses or wherever you need to t- put it in order to be reminded of that. Stick it on, the, uh, on your refrigerator. Uh, I was down at... first time I went down to Dan's, stayed, uh, stayed with him three or four years ago, I guess there had been one of these calendars that had promise calendars, and he had these things taped all over his house. You know, bachelors can do that. They don't have a wife to say, well, that just doesn't fit the decor. So that way he was constantly reminded of all of these various promises. So this is what we need. If we're going to begin exercising the faith rest drill, we have to know promises. When we're out there in the trenches and all of a sudden we're, 
we're out in the world and adversity hits and we're assaulted, the time, the only thing that we can utilize at that time is what's in our soul. And if we don't have the Word in our soul, it is the Word of God that is alive and powerful. It is the Word of God that is truth. It is the truth of the Word of God, doctrine that sets us free. We need to start by mixing faith with the promises of God. If there aren't any promises there, we can't go anywhere. So Gideon has to learn that. And that's the focus of chapter 6. He starts off with the promise. And then God gives him a minor test to put the faith rest drill, the principles into practice, which means a little doctrinal orientation. And he has to apply that by tearing down the altar to Baal in his own household. His father Joash had a a major Baal temple located right in the backyard. And the principle here is that doctrine is not something that's just academically learned. It has to be experientially applied. And that's what doctrinal orientation is. It is aligning our thinking and our life with what God says. And it is an outgrowth of the faith rest drill in many ways. So what happens here is that Gideon has to learn doctrinal orientation and there's an element of fear there, and we see that he's afraid to do it during the daytime, back in verse 27. He was too afraid of his father's household and the others, so he did it on his own. But he survived, and he understood something about the grace of God. And this is what we have studied in the past in terms of understanding the foundation for the spiritual life, in terms of spiritual uh, skills. These are spiritual techniques we practice again and again and again. It starts with confession. And obviously, there is a recognition of sin, and it is very likely that the sacrifice that Gideon brings to the altar is, also, is a sin offering, and there is confession of sin. Now, in the church age, we have the filling of the Holy Spirit, and we're commanded to walk by means of the Holy Spirit, but that is, they did not have that dynamic in the Old Testament related to spiritual growth. Now, that's important. In the New Testament, we're told that fruit or production is from the Holy Spirit. But the Holy Spirit did not produce spiritual growth in the Old Testament. The ministry of God, the Holy Spirit, was limited to just a very few Old Testament believers. Gideon is one of them, but at, he doesn't receive the empowerment of the Holy, or the endowment of the Holy Spirit until verse 34, after he has already gone through some initial uh, testing by God and see the purpose and the function of his being told by God to tear down the altar is because he has to function on the faith rest drill. He has to function on doctrinal orientation, which begins to build capacity for the spiritual life. And God can, is not going to use us. He will not use us beyond our capacity. So before God can get Gideon squared away for the attack and the assault on the Midianites in chapter 7, he has to build into him some spiritual growth, and some capacity before he can be used in his uh, ministry function. The third spiritual skill we work on in spiritual infancy is the faith rest drill, which is followed by grace orientation and doctrinal orientation. And this is the foundation that we work on. All the other skills, all of the other stress busters that are built on top of this are expansions of the basic concepts in the faith rest drill, grace orientation. Grace orientation emphasizes humility. It's all of God. It's nothing of me. Grace orientation emphasizes teachability. 
because we are humble and teachable under the grace concept and because we understand the grace principle of learning doctrine through the grace learning spiral, then we advance to doctrinal orientation. We begin to learn doctrine. And as we learn doctrine, we begin to learn about all the assets that God gives us and who we are in Christ and where we are headed in terms of our future role, as uh, Jody Dillow calls it, as servant kings. Our future role is to rule and reign with Jesus Christ as the administrative bureaucracy over the earth and over the universe. And as we come to grips with that, we understand that we're basically in boot camp right now until we're absent from the body face-to-face with the Lord. And we're in training for our eventual destiny in the millennial kingdom and in eternity. And this is where we go through uh, a major growth shift in terms of maturity because we are in spiritual adolescence. See, most adolescents don't think beyond this afternoon or tonight. And um, uh, what happens is their thinking is, and their decision-making is all in terms of what's going to happen to me today. How is this going to make me feel right now? And then all of a sudden, as you get older, and we've all experienced this, we begin to think in terms of how is this going to impact my life later on until we get to that day. As a friend of mine told me yesterday, who just recently turned 50, he said, that's not the shock. Shock is getting the application to AARP. So we suddenly begin to realize we have to make decisions in light of tomorrow, in light of provisions for our families, in light of of, uh, retirement, in light of how are we going to live when we're in our 60s, 70s, and 80s, and how are we going to be taken care of in case there's some debilitating illness. So all of a sudden we start thinking not in terms of today and tomorrow, but in terms of the future. That's maturity. That's comparable to our personal sense of our eternal destiny. Then, as a result of that, one thing that's wiped out is arrogance. Arrogance is wiped out at that stage. Because before that, you're self-absorbed. It's all thinking in terms of me, what's going to happen to me, what's God's plan for my life so that I can be happy and healthy and successful. And all of a sudden, when we get a personal sense of our eternal destiny, we begin to lose sight of being so self-absorbed. We focus on others and we begin to understand what real love is. That real love is not emotion, it's not sentimentality, it's not feeling a certain way about God or about people, but it's related to living a life for His purposes and not my purposes, which is personal love for God. See, everybody wants to run around talking about, oh, how I love Jesus, and oh, how I love God, and oh, wasn't it good to be at church this morning, but they don't, live a, they don't understand the first thing about love. One of the things that has impressed me so much, the more and more I go through both First John and the Upper Room Discourse in John 13 through 17, is love for God is demonstrated by obedience today. Jesus says over and over again, If you love me, you will keep my commandments. Obedience to the mandates and principles of doctrine in the New Testament are the barometer of the believer's spiritual love for God. Personal love for God is evidenced by his... Uh, application of doctrine, that God is now the number one priority and obedience to doctrine is flows from that. This develops an understanding of what it means to truly love other people. Jesus said we are to love one another as He loved us. 
Well, we can't really understand what it means to love someone else if you don't understand the basics of soteriology, if you don't understand the dynamics of the spiritual substitutionary work of Christ from the cross. We can't, don't have a comprehension of what he suffered when he was on the cross between 12 noon and 3 p.m. that afternoon and all that he went through for us. Jesus said, love one another as I have loved you. If we don't understand the comparison, the analogy of how he loved us, then how in the world can we know whether or not we love anybody else? We may have certain feelings about them and they may make us feel good, but, but don't confuse that with what the Bible talks about love. And then we get to the point where we live a life that is focused on Jesus Christ. He is the author and finisher of our faith, and we focus on Him. And I call this the love triplex because they all relate to developing our capacity for biblical love. And the ultimate result of that is we have real joy, we have stability, we have tranquility, we have real happiness in the midst of the most devastating situations and consequences. Well, that takes us up into those advanced levels, but the basic foundational levels of the stress busters are where Gideon is. And Gideon has developed some capacity for faith rest drill. He understands God has made him a promise to give him a victory, and that now he is going, he's learned some things about grace, that it's dependent upon God and not upon himself, but he hasn't really advanced in his grace understanding yet, and he's going to in chapter 7. So let's start with chapter 7, verse 1. Then Jeroboam, parenthesis, that is Gideon. Now, last time we looked at the term Jeroboam, and it is usually translated as a jussive, let Baal contend for himself, and it relates back to Gideon's episode with tearing down the, the uh, Baalim and Asherah and the hostility of the neighbors. And Joash came out, and according to the text, he renames his son, although there's a strong... Uh, contention, strong argument that Gideon was his original name, a hewer, and Jeroboam was his, uh, I mean, Jer- that Jeroboam was his original name, and Gideon is one that was uh, attached to him, and that uh, there's a certain amount of sarcasm and irony going on here, because everywhere else in the Old Testament, Gideon is referred to, he's referred to by the name Jeroboam, and where uh, that word is, some, about half the time, it's changed to Jeroboam. Bosheth is a Hebrew word for shame. And, and whenever you have a Baal cognomen in a Hebrew name, it is frequently changed to Bosheth because this is a sign of shame that the person has uh, this name. So when you look at a number of technical factors related to the name, it's not really a positive thing that, that uh, well, if, you know, it sounds to us when we read it at first glance that that what Joash is saying is, look, if, if Baal really exists, then he'd come down and he would handle it. So since he didn't do anything, you guys just go home. What he's really saying is, look, Baal's going to take care of things. It's a, it's a slam on Gideon's relationship to God, and it is a foreshadowing of what eventually happens because Gideon will lead the nation back into idolatry, and the moment he dies, they go right back into Baal worship. So Baal seems to be victorious. So you, you have to understand the Hebrew there to get at some of the very subtle uh, nuances of the writer. Now, Jeroboam, that is Gideon, the only other place outside of these chapters where he's called Gideon is in Hebrews 11. 
by the way. Uh, then Jeroboam and all the people who were with him rose early and camped beside the spring of Herod. And the camp of Midian was on the north side of them by the hill of Morah in the valley. Then God comes along to him. Now Gideon has raised an army now. He's, uh, the Spirit of the Lord came upon him back in verse 34 of the previous uh, chapter. And he blew a trumpet and various tribes. These are the less significant tribes, by the way. This isn't Judah. These aren't some of the stronger groups. There's an emphasis there that these are the smaller, less powerful uh, believers who respond. Manasseh, Asher, Zebulun, and Naphtali. He's got 32,000. Now, there's about 135,000 Midianites down in the valley. So, 32,000 against 150,000, you've got odds of five, 5 to 1. Well, those aren't really good. and Gideon's faith is being stretched, but he doesn't know what's going to happen. God appears to him and says, Gideon, you've just got way too many people here. You've got too many weapons and you've got, got too many men and, and you don't need all these men because, of course, what God is saying is the victory is mine. It's not dependent upon your power. It's not dependent on your strength or training. Uh, of course, these are all rookies going up against battle-hardened warriors and swordsmen. And so God says, first thing that we want to do is we want to uh, cull the ranks a little bit. So he says to him, uh, verse 2, there's, there's too many for me to give Midian into their hands, lest Israel become boastful, saying, my own power has delivered me. See, they're not ready spiritually. They don't have the capacity yet. So if, if they go into battle, they're going to claim that it's their own ability. Verse 3, God continues, now therefore come. Proclaiming the hearing of the people, saying, Whoever is afraid and trembling, let him return and depart from Mount Gilead. This is a principle in uh, Deuteronomy chapter 20 for the warfare in Israel. So hold your place there, and let's just turn back to see how God has outlined the principles of, for warfare in Israel. Deuteronomy chapter 20. Begins when you go out to battle against your enemies and see horses and chariots. And, of course, the uh, Midianites had domesticated the camel. They had quite a fast uh, uh, cavalry corps there through the use of camels. When you go out to battle against your enemies and see horses and chariots and people more numerous than you, uh, I'd say five to one is more numerous, do not be afraid of them. For the Lord you got, your God who brought you up from the land of Egypt is with you. Now, notice God's rationale here. God is saying, you have empirical confirmation that I can deliver you and there's no, no power greater than me. That means, believer, that there's nothing in your life God can't handle. You know, you may think it's overpowering, you may think it's difficult, you may think it's depressing and uh, distasteful, but God is more powerful than anything. We have the empirical data to demonstrate it. Verse 2, now it shall come about that when you are approaching the battle, the priest shall come near and speak to the people, and he shall say to them, Hear, O Israel, you are approaching the battle against your enemies today. In other words, believer, you're getting ready to face a problem. What kind of stress buster are you going to use? It says, Do not be faint-hearted, do not be afraid or panic or tremble before them. For the Lord your God is the one who goes with you to fight for you against your enemies to save you. First principle is don't be faint-hearted. Well, 
Gideon has approximately 22,000 fearful, faint-hearted believers who don't know how to use the faith rest drill, don't trust doctrine, and God does not use believers who don't trust Him, who don't have an ability to apply doctrine, who are not willing to rely exclusively upon Him to accomplish His purposes. So He's going to get in there and call that. Now, there's an application here for the spiritual life, and that is that that as we, get our belief, as we are born again, regenerated, come into the spiritual life, our mentality is filled with all kinds of pagan concepts. And the principle of the spiritual life is to cull those spiritual concepts out of our thinking. And that's, uh, by analogy, what Gideon is doing. Before God can use him, he has to get rid of the human viewpoint methodology people. See, God is only going to operate on those who not only have divine viewpoint, but have divine viewpoint methodology in place. And so, see, there's a lot of Christians out there who want to do God's plan, but they're doing it with human viewpoint methodology. So God is going to get rid of those who don't want to trust Him exclusively. Principle in verse 4, For it is the Lord your God who goes with you to fight for you against your enemies to save you. The officers also speak to the people, saying, Who is the man that has built a new house and has not dedicated it? Let him depart and return to his house, lest he die in the battle, and another man dedicate it. And who is the man that has planted a vineyard and has not begun to use its fruit? Let him depart and return to his house. These were legitimate reasons now. God was saying, if there's something that might distract you, then, then you need to leave the battlefield. And that is a principle for us as well, that we need to make sure that we... Uh, are not distracted from our spiritual battle, our spiritual growth. Now let's go back to Judges chapter chapter 6. So Gideon gives them an option, gives them an out. Anybody afraid? Go home. It's no problem. It's not difficult. Just It's legitimate, based on Deuteronomy 20. It's 22,000 go home. So now, instead of 5 to 1, the odds improve. It's now 13 to 1. Well, Gideon, I'm sure, with 10,000 against 150,000, that's about 15 to 1, I can't read my writing, 15 to 1 with 10,000, Gideon is uh, probably beginning to question the wisdom and veracity of God at this point. He looks around at his untried rookies, 10,000 men who hadn't even made it through boot camp yet, and remember, the Midianites and Amalekites probably had Iron Age weapons, and the Jews don't. They're out there with their plowshares and whatever they have to fight the enemy. Bronze swords, maybe one or two of them, and wooden spears. So the Lord says to Gideon, go out and start training the troops. No. He says, people are still way too many here. We just have a lot of too many people here, and I don't want anybody to get the idea that somehow... They were able to succeed in solving their problems apart from exclusive radical dependence upon me. See, that's the principle here. God wants to make it clear that there's not success based on something else. This is why, and I always sound radical when I say this, that I am not in favor of people going to 10-step programs, whether it's to Alcoholics Anonymous or Gamblers Anonymous. I think Alcoholics Anonymous only has around a 15 or 17 percent success rate anyway. Um, or any of these other programs, psychology, whatever it might be, to try to solve the problems in their life. You see, if you go out and you solve your problem apart from a 100 percent radical exclusive dependence upon Bible doctrine, then you have something to brag about. 
And the point is that any success that we have in life is only due to exclusive dependence upon God, that God is the one who gives the victory, not us. The battle is the Lord's, it's not ours. And so we have to learn not only the divine viewpoint of doctrine, but the divine viewpoint methodology for handling the problem. And so God wants to make this clear. And so he says, let's have one more little test here. I will test them, take them down to the water, and I will test them for you there. Therefore, it shall be said, it shall be that he of whom I say to you, this one shall go with you, he shall go with you. But every one of whom I say to you, this one shall not go with you, he shall not go. So he, that is Gideon, brought the people down to the water. And the Lord said to Gideon, you shall separate everyone who laps the water with his tongue as a dog laps, as well as everyone who kneels to drink. Now, what ha- what's going on here is that they're thirsty, it's a, it's a dry land, and they come down to the water, and there are those who are thirsty, and they fall down on their knees, and they just bury their heads in the water, and they're just slurping up. And then there are those who come along with a warrior's mentality, this is, you, you, the, and with their focus on the job at hand, scanning the horizon for the enemy, and they will stop and scoop the water up with their hand and throw it into their mouth, but their focus is on the watchfulness. Their priority is on God's plan. They understand why they're there. They understand what the priority is, and it's demonstrated by their actions. And so God says, okay, now we're going to get rid of the people who have, are, are still don't understand what the plan and priority is here, and that this is my plan and my priority and not your agenda. So that leaves Gideon with only 300 men. Well, that really looks good. Now the odds are 450 to 1. Now God is ready to go into battle. The Lord said to Gideon, I will deliver you with the 300 men who lapped and will give the Midianites into your hands. So let all the people go, each man back to his own home. Verse 8, so the 300 men took the people's provisions and their trumpets into their hands. And Gideon sent all the other men of Israel, each to his tent, but retained the 300 and the camp of Midian was below him in the valley. Notice, Gideon has the high ground. That's a key military principle. The person who has the high ground has the advantage. So here we have a map of uh, Israel, topographical map. If you follow the area arrow, Midian is over here to the east of the Jordan River, to the east and south. And the Midianite Amalekite coalition has come across through here up into the valley of Jezreel. This is an enormous valley doesn't show up well on this overhead, but it's an enormous valley that goes from the Jordan almost to, um, to the Mediterranean. The only thing that blocks it is Mount Carmel is located right here, and this is an enormous expanse of valley. Just to the southeast of Mount Carmel is a tell called the Tell of Megiddo, the city of Megiddo, or Har Megiddo, which comes into the New Testament by the infamous name Armageddon. And this is the valley where the Battle of Armageddon will take place. Now, here's another map giving a uh, detail of the Valley of Jezreel here. You can read, here's the Valley of Jezreel. Here's Megiddo here. Carmel is off the map to your, to your left. Here is the Hill of Mora, And down here is the, uh, where the Midianites are encamped. And so what happens is that the troops of Gideon come to the spring of Herod here. This is where he calls the troops. 
And then he attacks the Midianites. They're camped out on the other side of the hill of Morah down in the valley. And they're surrounded on, on three sides by this hill. So he has 300 troops at his disposal and he's going to be given a very interesting strategy by the Lord. But before the Lord gives him the strategy, the Lord realizes that Gideon has to have his faith strengthened a little bit. So we're told in verse 9, Now the same night it came about that the Lord said to him, Arise, go down against the camp, for I have given it into your hands. And here we have a perfect tense, which is called a prophetic perfect in the Hebrew. And it means that the, the, the giving of victory has already been accomplished in the counsel of God, and it is not to be doubted. And I have already done this, it's already accomplished, it's already in your bank account, but you need to go down and get a little confirmation, because, see, Gideon is having third thoughts. See, Gideon's like we are. We trust God, and then we want to take it back, and then we trust Him again, and then we want to take it back, and we just sort of grow in fits and starts. Gideon is, is not a man of, of tremendous, uh, unrealistic faith in God. We see that again he tested God with the fleece, which was just another way of trying to avoid responsibility, and he's still concerned about this whole situation. So the Lord comes down. Notice how God continually meets us where we are. That's grace. And this is a lesson for parents. You know, it's important for parents to be strong disciplinarians with their kids, but it's also important for you to understand who your kids are and their weaknesses and, and deal with them in terms of those weaknesses and not in terms of some autonomous absolute that you've generated out of thin air. See, that's how we think God deals with us. Oh, my God, God wants me to live here. Obviously, He does. We know the standards of Scripture. But God also knows our weaknesses. He knows our sinfulness. And He deals with us on the basis of who we are and where we are, and not on the basis of what we should be and where we should be. So He comes down and He's going to give a little extra confirmation to Gideon says, if you're afraid to go down by yourself, that is, go with Puri, your servant, down to the camp, and you will hear what they say, and afterward your hands will be strengthened, that you may go down against the camp. So he went with Pura, the servant, down to the outpost of the army that was in the camp. Now we're told a little bit about the enemy. The Midianites and the Amalekites and all the sons of the east were lying in the valley as numerous as locusts. Locusts is often a term used for a destructive, destroying, invading army throughout the Old Testament. They're as numerous as locusts, and their camels are without numbers. Numerous as the sand on the seashore. So we have a little hyperbole here. We find out later that it's actually 135,000 with all of their camels, so it's quite a host, quite a, a, an encampment, a bivouac. When Gideon came to hold a man, he, he sneaks down. It's nighttime, and he's on the outside perimeter of the camp, and he listens to a, a couple of the sentries are out there having a little discussion. And one man says, I had a dream. A loaf of barley bread was tumbling into the camp of Midian, and he came to the tent and struck it so that it fell, turned it upside down so that the tent lay flat. Now, this guy's just saying, this was really weird. I don't know what kind of mushrooms we had in the... Uh, on the pizza last night, but man, I've had some weird dreams. Well, his friend gives it, God enables, God is giving special revelation to the one man, and he's given the interpretation to the other, even though they're not believers. This is nothing less than the sword of Gideon, so somehow they know about Gideon. So once again, we realize Gideon had servants, Gideon has, is, has a reputation, he's known by the enemy, so... 
That tells us that when Gideon's whining to God about, I'm a nobody and I don't have anything and I can't go do the job, that Gideon wasn't exactly telling the truth. He was just avoiding responsibility. It came about when Gideon heard the account of the dream and its interpretation that he bowed in worship. That's an interesting response. He worships God. He is thankful. He is grateful. He focuses on God. At this point, Gideon finally realizes the battle is the Lord's. It is not up to him and that God is going to give the victory to Israel. So he returned to the camp of Israel and said, Arise, for the Lord has given the camp of Midian into your hand. And he divided the 300 men into three companies. So there's 100 each, three sides. Okay, we're going to put 100 out on this ridge, 100 on this ridge, and 100 off to the left. So we're going to surround the enemy on three sides with these three companies. Now, listen to what he does. This seems odd to us. He put trumpets and empty pitchers into the hands of all of them. Notice he didn't put bows and arrows. He didn't put swords. He didn't put spears. He didn't even give them a slingshot. He gave them, each man had a trumpet in his right hand and an empty pitcher in his left, and then they put a torch inside the pitcher so, so you couldn't see the light. It would, it, would be, um, it would be hidden. It would be darkened. He said, look at me and do likewise. Behold, when I come to the outskirts of the camp, do as I do. So we're all going to line up. We're going to get around the camp. And when we're all in position, I'm going to blow the trumpet. And simultaneously, you will take your trumpet and blow it and then break the um, pitcher that is cloaking the light. And suddenly what will happen is you will hear the blast of the trumpet you'll, and the, this, the light. And we're going to time this with the... Um, changing of the guard. So Gideon and the hundred men who were with him came to the outskirts of the camp at the beginning of the middle watch when they had just posted the watch. Now, what's happening here? At the middle watch, you've got one group of sentries have just come on. They're waking up. They're a little groggy still. It's about three o'clock or four o'clock in the morning. And the other group is headed back into camp. So you've got probably several thousand troops in, in movement. One group's moved out, another group is, is headed back into the camp. And right at that moment, when you have uh, probably a third of the Midianite army coming back into the camp, Gideon gives the signal. Now, a little aside here, what you have to realize is that normally in an, in an army you would have, whether it was a company size or a battalion size unit, whether it was 500 or 1,000 or maybe a larger group, you would only have one torch and one trumpet per every 500,000 or 1,500 men. I don't know what the exact numbers would have been at that time, but whenever you saw a, heard a trumpet, that wasn't one man, that represented 1,000 or 1,500 men. So when Gideon, what Gideon is doing is it's a tremendous ruse. He is going to trick the enemy into thinking they are surrounded by several thousand troops. Because instead of just thinking there's 300 people up there with 300 lights, they're probably thinking there's about 30,000 or maybe 60,000 up there and they're completely surrounded by an enormous horde. Verse 20, when the three companies blew the trumpets, broke the pitchers, they held the torches in their left hands and the trumpets in the right hand and they cried out, A sword for the Lord and for Gideon. And eat notice, and they attacked. Is that what it says in the next verse? No. And each stood in his place around the camp, and all the army ran, crying out as they fled. Now, that refers to the Midianites. See, you've got one group moving into camp. Well, the group that's still asleep in camp wakes up, hears this assault, 
they're coming out of their sleep and they're seeing a number of men coming towards them. It's their own men, but they're, it's nighttime and they're asleep. And so they wake up and start fighting their own men. And so confusion just flows through the camp. And as they start fighting, it gets the camels and the horses all excited and they start running all over one another and the whole camp just erupts in massive panic. And, of course, it is the Lord who has brought the panic on the enemy. Verse 22, And when they blew three hundred trumpets, the Lord sent the sword of one against another. Notice it is the Lord who does it. It is not Gideon. Now, they're crying out. Once again, you see the irony and foreshadowing of the author. They're crying out for the Lord and for Gideon. See, at the end of this, Gideon's going to fall because of arrogance. So we see this starting to be set up. The writer is preparing us for this. When they blew the trumpets, the Lord set the sword of one another against one another, even throughout the whole army. And the army fled as far as Beth Shittah towards Zerurah and as far as the edge of Abel Maholah by Tabat. Now we're not exactly sure where all of those places are, but they would be retreating down to the southeast to the Jordan River Valley. And that's where they're headed. And this line here on the map is an approximation of their retreat route. And they're headed that way. And the men of Israel were summoned from Naphtali and Asher and all Manasseh. Now, these are the troops that had gone home. And they pursued Midian. So the cry goes out that the enemy's on the run. Let's, uh, let's annihilate them. Verse 24, And Gideon sent messengers throughout all the hill country of Ephraim. This is an Ephraim down here is this region to the south south of Mount Gilboa, come down against Midian and take the waters before them as far as Beth Barah and the Jordan. So all the men of Ephraim were summoned, and they took the waters as far as Beth Barah. That means they, they uh, secured the ford to stop the retreat of the Midianites and set up an ambush. And they did it at two places. And at those two places, they killed two of the generals, Oreb, which means Wolf and Zeev, which means raven. So they killed the wolf and the raven here. They captured the two leaders of Midian, Oreb and Zeb, and they killed Oreb at the rock of Oreb, and they killed Zeb at the winepress of Zeb. Now, in Isaiah chapter 10, verse 26, when it talks about uh, how it uses this battle as an encouragement to the Jews at the time of Hezekiah, it says that there will be a great slaughter as at the Rock of Oreb. So apparently the major battle took place at the Rock of Oreb. And then another group managed to escape with Zeb, and they killed him at the winepress of Zeb. And they brought the heads of Oreb and Zeb to Gideon from across the Jordan. Now we'll have to stop there, but we've seen that Gideon, because he has learned grace orientation, the faith rest drill, is now capable of having a tremendous victory a victory where all the credit goes to the Lord. And just as Gideon had that kind of victory, so can we over any problem or difficulty in life. But God's going to make it clear that it is exclusive dependence on Him and not depending on Him plus some other human viewpoint methodology or human viewpoint technique. Let's take a little application. We are in the midst of quite a challenge for the congregation, and that is that we have to uh, build a new building. The, looking at it, the finances are far beyond the capacity of a small congregation. Yet, nevertheless, we have that task. God is going to supply the need. And we need to make sure that we don't fall guilty to the pressures, 
trying to go out and raise the money on the basis of some sort of human viewpoint uh, program or methodology. I'll never forget the advice a pastor gave me years ago. He said, any fundraiser with any organization, any secular organization, can go out and raise a million, two million, three million, ten million dollars if they know what they're doing. But that's not in the power of God the Holy Spirit. And unfortunately, there are too many Christian organizations that have uh, truly blasphemed the name of God because they have gone out and raised hundreds of thousands of dollars in an end justifies the mean sort of mentality and because they think they did it through this technique and that technique and this uh, fundraising program and that fundraising program that God did it. Well, God didn't have anything to do with it. And as we saw, taking the Lord's name in vain really means to attach the Lord's name to a cause that He didn't support. So we're not going to fall prey to that. We are going to recognize that though we might be the 300 and the finances that we need to raise in order to keep this ministry going and to have a place for it is like fighting 135,000 with the odds 450 to 1. God is going to give us the victory. And it's going to be exciting to see how He does that with our heads bowed and our eyes closed. Father, we thank You for the opportunity to trust You. Thank You for what You're doing in this congregation and in our lives through the teaching of Your Word, that it is Your Word that sets us free. It is Your Word that gives us uh, an understanding of what life is all about. It is Your Word that gives us a capacity for life. And it is Your Word that helps us to understand who You are and how great You are. Father, we pray that if there's anyone here this morning unsure of their salvation, uncertain of their eternal life, that they would take this opportunity to make that sure and certain. All you need to do right now, right where you sit, is to put your faith in Christ alone as your Savior. Scripture says Jesus was crucified according to the Scriptures, that He was buried and rose again on the third day according to the Scriptures, and that this is the Gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ, that He paid the price in full, and all we have to do is accept it as a free gift, and we will have eternal life. Father, we pray for the rest of us that we would be challenged by the things that we have studied today as we see Your tremendous power that there is an opportunity for your power to be manifested in our weakness that you might get all the glory and that we might not boast in anything that we have done. We pray this in the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior. Amen.